It's the world's biggest telescope, yet it doesn't use light. This week on Planetary Radio. Welcome to the travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society. It will make sharper images than the Hubble Space Telescope, yet it is a radio telescope. ALMA is the gigantic instrument already in operation, 5,000 meters or about three miles above sea level in Chile's Atacama Desert. We'll talk to two of the scientists who are part of the international ALMA team, along with all of our regulars, beginning with Emily Lakdawalla. Emily, thanks for joining us as always. I uh, want to look back to something you posted on the 16th of January, actually the 15th and the 16th. It's an indication, I guess, that uh, scientists did the right thing taking this little detour with Curiosity on Mars. That's right, Matt. You know, the, the rover operators faced a really tough decision months ago when they first decided where to start driving. The thing is that they knew that they were going to have to test out all the equipment on some Martian rocks. And they really want to drive to the mountain that's in the middle of the crater. But there were some interesting looking rocks that were not very far from the rover, but precisely in the wrong direction. Hmm. Well, they, they decided to go to those interesting looking rocks that were closer. And that's where they've been doing all their tests. And lo and behold, it is a kind of rock that is exactly what Curiosity was sent to Mars to study. We're looking at lake bed sediments that have been wet over at least two, probably three different times in Mars's history. So it's preserving a record of water on Mars at at least two, maybe three different episodes. It's precisely what Curiosity went to Mars to do. And so they are so excited that, that they went on this detour to study these rocks. Great results already, obviously. And uh, kind of complementing that, another terrific picture from uh, High Rise. Yeah, and this one was almost, an, it wasn't precisely accidental that they got the rover, but they, they were specifically shooting some color imaging of Curiosity's future trek. But of course, the swath of the image caught Curiosity parked at Glenelg, exploring some of those really exciting rocks. And it's just, it's, a, it's fresh and amazing every single time I see a picture of human-built hardware on the surface of another planet. So it's in the blog on the 15th and 16th, those entries that Emily made. Be sure to look at the close-up of a rover on Mars and then the panorama it took from exactly that picture. With a few seconds left, do you want to congratulate the Chinese? Absolutely. You know, they took a spacecraft that they built for lunar exploration and they, you know, had a spacecraft had a little lifetime left. They're like, hey, let's fly it past an asteroid, which is really not something that one can imagine you can ordinarily do with a spacecraft past its lifetime. And they did. And they got tons of images of this weird shaped asteroid. I don't think it's a, a potato or a yam. I've decided it's a space <laughs> ginger root. <laughs> Which somehow seems appropriate. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it is a Chinese mission after all. <laughs> well, definitely congratulations uh, to everyone behind the Chang'e uh, 2 mission. And uh, Emily, thank you for joining us once again. Thank you, Matt. She is a senior editor for the Planetary Society and our planetary evangelist, a contributing editor to Sky and Telescope magazine. Up next is Bill Nye, but Bill joins us from a hotel in Washington, where, as you'll hear, he was there for the inauguration, but he also took some time to talk to Casey Dreyer, one of our colleagues at the Society. Thank you, Matt. I am here with our outreach and advocacy strategist, Casey Dreyer. Yeah, I was in Washington, D.C. all last week, uh, visiting people on the Hill, visiting people at NASA headquarters, and kind of meeting and strategizing with other uh, people in the space policy area. So, Casey, you met with Diane Feinstein or her people? 
Uh, yes, I met with the staffer in charge of the space policy for Diane Feinstein and talked to him about the importance of not just the Mars program at JPL, but also the outer planets and missions like Europa uh, or missions to Europa that we really want to see happen in this next decade. Are they supportive? Are they in? They are interested. Again, most people are never against planetary science. The real question, as most uh, things come down to in Washington these days, is how are you going to pay for it? And it's really something that Congress can do. But again, the advantage that we have here for planetary science and at the Planetary Society is that the money required to do these missions is just not very much. We're talking about less than 2% of NASA's budget to be moved back to planetary science. So they can find ways to do that. 2% of NASA's budget? Which yep. is in 0.4% of the federal budget. Yes, yes. So we're talking about uh, vanishingly small uh, numbers that are losing all meaning, really, when you're talking about it in, in that larger context. So, But the vanishingly small number you're talking about is $302 million this year, right? And about $300 million in coming years. Is that right? Yeah. If we keep it flat at $1.5 billion, that's returning about $300 million. And keeping it like that for the next five years, we can do missions like a mission to Europa. We can do uh, the Mars sample return mission. And then we can do a bunch of other really exciting small missions to uh, uh, other parts of the solar system. Again, it's a lot of money to an individual, but we're not talking about individuals here. We're talking about the federal government, and it can it can very much work. So who else did you speak with? I met a staffer at Judy Chu's office. Judy Chu is the uh, congressional uh, representative here on Pasadena. She just got redistricted into this area and has taken a much larger interest in space policy. She's been saying some very exciting, very supporting things about JPL's Mars program. And again, I met with her uh, staffer to, to share that it's not just Mars. Uh, there are missions to Europa and these smaller missions called discovery missions that, that are really important too. And that all of those would benefit uh, the community here. And, of course, they would make human, help humankind make discoveries that could change the world. No big yeah. deal. Toss that in at the end. Just a great job, man. I'm Bill Nye, CEO of the Planetary Society, handing it back to Matt Kaplan. Travel south to Chile's Atacama Desert, where so many of our planet's most powerful telescopes can be found, and you'll also find a growing array of gigantic radio dishes arrayed across a plain that is 5,000 meters above sea level. This is ALMA, the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array. With a year to go before it is completed, ALMA is already enabling astronomers to make discoveries no other telescope has been capable of. The project is a partnership that includes the European Southern Observatory, Canada, Japan, Taiwan, Chile, and the United States. Al Wotan has been working on this project for 30 years. He is the North American Project Scientist and head of the North American ALMA Science Center at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory. Allison Peck has just returned from five years of shuttling between Santiago and the telescope site, where she led a team of ALMA commissioning scientists. Here are excerpts of our conversation at the recent meeting of the American Astronomical Society. The complete interview, which is more than twice as long, can be heard online at planetary.org slash radio. We just came a few moments ago out of a session that uh, you chaired, Al, mm -hmm. with the scientists uh, working with this instrument. While I did not, I have to admit, understand a lot of their data, hmm. I sure noticed that they kept using these adjectives like remarkable, amazing, fantastic. 
Mm-hmm. And this about an instrument that's only partially complete. Absolutely. And just uh, 16, 17, 18 of the uh, eventual uh, 66 antennas were involved in, in the data that we saw. What is it that Alma's going to be able to do for the astronomy community that no other instrument has ever been able to do? Well, we'll be able to uh, peer into the uh, cool universe, the uh, cold, dusty places where stars are being formed uh, and planets are being formed with a sharpness of vision that nobody's been able to uh, use before. And that will enable us to discover how and where stars are formed, how and where planets are formed, much like the planets in the solar system. Uh, But additionally, because distant galaxies are at large redshifts, their whole spectrum gets shifted uh, from the optical part of the spectrum into the millimeter part of the spectrum. And so an additional aspect of ALMA is that the uh, galaxies, which are uh, faint optically because their uh, emission has been redshifted out of that portion of the spectrum, are bright for ALMA. And so we have an unusual advantage in being able to see uh, very distant galaxies pretty sharply, as you saw in many of the talks this morning. I read about five different areas of research that ALMA will be able to conduct. Really, these capabilities, while it's not limited to looking back toward the beginning of the universe, that's one of the things, obviously, that ALMA's going to do better than any other mm-hmm. instrument. That's right, that's right. And in particular, at the wavelength ranges that we're looking at, the sensitivity that we have is unprecedented. There have been some millimeter interferometers before, and they're still going, and they're very good instruments, but with limited sensitivity. They have fewer antennas, they have smaller antennas, and so with the advent of ALMA, we're able to observe a large number of sources in a very small amount of time, and that means that we can do more complete surveys. We can build up statistics about the galaxies in the early universe. If you look at one object, you may be able to learn quite a bit about that object, but you don't learn a lot about the the topic of galaxy evolution. You need to look at a large number of galaxies in order to see what the the general trends are, what the majority of galaxies were doing. And that's one of the doors that ALMA opens. We can look very far back towards the beginning of the universe, and we can look at a very large number of galaxies and find out what the trends are, how they tended to evolve, um, when the stars are formed, whether they have active galactic nuclei inside, um, that sort of thing. So very much like, I mean, exactly like optical astronomy, that superb sensitivity that you'll have means not only can you look at fainter objects, but you can look at more of them because your observation time doesn't have to be as long. Exactly. Mm -hmm. To my surprise, ALMA, which is going to be looking back to the beginning of everything, it may also be able to help out with things much closer to home right here in our own solar system. Yeah, when you look at uh, an asteroid or some of the deep solar system uh, Kuiper Belt objects, for instance, you're looking at reflected sunlight, and so it's very difficult to tell uh, how large the object is. What you're really looking at is how good a mirror it is for reflecting the sunlight back. And so you don't get a very good estimate of its size. But Almond directly images the thermal radiation, the mass of rock at a certain temperature emits at the Alma wavelengths. And so by measuring the emission from these objects at Alma wavelengths, you can actually get an estimate of the mass uh, much better hmm. than you can uh, optically. And so uh, Alma will be very important for doing that, particularly as we begin to explore the distant solar system with the New Horizons uh, mission coming up, uh, getting close to Pluto, which we now realize has, I've lost track, four It's moons, quite a busy quite place. Quite a few moons, right? And you don't want one of them to hit the spacecraft when it goes past. So we need to know the orbits of those uh, 
very uh, accurately. From the Earth, we have the moon to worry about optically. That doesn't affect uh, radio observations at all. And so we can look at the uh, very faintest objects basically uh, anytime. One of the other th exciting things that we can do with ALMA is because we can detect molecules and using mm -hmm. the Doppler shift, the Doppler effect, we mm -hmm. can see um, what direction they're moving. We can see whether they're moving towards us or away from us. And we have high enough resolution to be able to see what the distribution of mo molecules is in the atmospheres of planets in our solar system. And so that means that we can measure how fast the winds are blowing in different parts of the atmosphere on, on planets in our system. Um, Saturn, for example, was one of the Cycle Zero projects. And so we can actually see what the weather is like on other planets. And that gives us a very good sense of what the conditions would be like if you were on the surface that we can see from Earth. More from Al Watson and Allison Peck about ALMA is moments away. This is Planetary Radio. Hey, hey, Bill Nye here, CEO of the Planetary Society, speaking to you from Planet Fest 2012, the celebration of the Mars Science Laboratory rover Curiosity landing on the surface of Mars. This is taking us our next steps in following the water and the search for life to understand those two deep questions. Where did we come from and are we alone? This is the most exciting thing that people do. And together we can advocate for planetary science and dare I say it. Change the worlds. Hi, this is Emily Lakdawalla of the Planetary Society. We've spent the last year creating an informative, exciting, and beautiful new website. Your Place in Space is now open for business. You'll find a whole new look with lots of images, great stories, my popular blog, and new blogs from my colleagues and expert guests. And as the world becomes more social, we are too, giving you the opportunity to join in through Facebook, Google+, Twitter, and much more. It's all at planetary.org. I hope you'll check it out. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. We're talking with Al Watson and Allison Peck, two leaders of the International Radio Telescope Project known as ALMA, the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array, now nearing completion in Chile's Atacama Desert. ALMA uses interferometry to make its many individual instruments act as a single gigantic telescope. How is it that you're going to be able to get 66 dishes spread across this plane to function like one gigantic telescope? Well, not easily, but <laughs> <laughs> so far all the telescopes are uh, sort of within a kilometer of the home base. We're just constructing the more distant pads and, and putting the wiring in to connect them up. Uh, so that's one of the big jobs that we have over the next year as we finish uh, up with the construction. Uh, eventually, it covers uh, 16 kilometers. It's about the size of the mm. Washington Beltway that we have covered with antennas. And that will enable us to give a uh, acuity of vision uh, sort of like the Hubble Space Telescope, well, better than the Hubble Space Telescope has. Mm. Uh, so we'll get very fine details in all these objects. So there were a number of challenges associated with that, and not least of which is that we have antennas coming from the different regions of the project. So they were built by different uh, companies, and all of the antennas have to meet very, very specific parameters so that they all operate in exactly the same manner, mm -hmm. and they all have to respond exactly the same way to the software. So obviously we have a very large software package operating the telescope because it has to move all of the antennas in 
unison. They have to be moving at exactly the same rate and mm-hmm. pointing at exactly Incredible the same precision. place. Right. Incredible precision, that's right. And all of the signals have to come underground on optical fibers to a supercomputer called the correlator. Now, the correlator multiplies these signals together to construct one single image from all of these diverse antennas. And so the software challenge there is, is enormous. And we've had very good people working on it for a number of years. And so now we are able, in fact, to move the antennas to kilometers apart, be able to look at exactly the same point in the sky and add the signals together to make the fantastic images, some of which you saw downstairs in the, uh, the special session. Talk a little bit more about this correlator because I have read that this is one of the most powerful supercomputers on this planet now and certainly the one that is higher in altitude than any other. Right, so uh, one of the challenges you face is the uh, is cooling it. That's a lot of electronics. <laughs> if you were to look at a picture of the building at the high site, a lot of it is involved just with the cooling machinery uh, to keep the correlator cool. Furthermore, there's no air up there, and a lot of the uh, data on your uh, devices that you have in your pocket and in front of you are written on hard disks uh, with uh, magnetic technology. But we have to use uh, uh, diskless technology up there because uh, the air pressure is such that it won't support the flying heads that write oh, on the disks. Gosh. Yeah, so, uh, so there are a lot of challenges with moving uh, that much data. I've got to throw one number at you because it looked like a typo. 137 million processors in the system? Yeah, it's, it's an impressive supercomputer, but you have to remember that it's designed for a single purpose. Mm-hmm. And so it's not as versatile as a lot of the computers that are called supercomputers. But because it has a very specific design for a specific function, then all of the effort can go into making it as fast as possible and also as robust as possible because you don't want to have to service it very often at 5,000 meters. It is one of the highest supercomputers in the world, as you mentioned. One interesting aspect of it is we're high up, and so the cosmic ray flux is pretty high. Ugh. And the cosmic rays can damage some of the electronics. Just and so as has, they do with spacecraft now. Right, and, and so it has self-check circuits in it, which actually uh, check for uh, uh, cosmic ray damage. This brings up an interesting point, which I knew was true in the general public, but I didn't realize was so true among astronomers, particularly astronomers used to working with different uh, wavelengths. Then what do you do? Radio astronomy. It kind of gets to, uh, you'll pardon the pun, the image problem Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. radio astronomy has always had. I mean, if you get beyond Arecibo and the VLA, largely thanks to Jodie Foster, I think, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. we really just don't, the, the vast public, don't think much about these tools in radio astronomy, which are able, as you said, Al, to mm-hmm. now, Alma, will resolve better than the Hubble Space Telescope. You are getting images from it. That's right. I think most people, when they think of radio astronomy, think of uh, uh, perhaps uh, uh, in contact with the earphones yeah, on, right. listening <laughs> to the hiss from outer space. I don't think we've ever heard a hiss from Alma. Uh, no. <laughs> process through. You'll let uh, us know if you get a signal, <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, we yeah. could turn it into a hiss, but it wouldn't be as meaningful as images are. <laughs> so the real goal has always been to uh, to provide those uh, those those stunning images. Uh, images. In, in the past, many radio images have, have sort of looked like blobs because we just haven't had as many antennas and as much sensitivity as Alma has. So our goal is uh, to make radio images as visually pleasing as those you get from the Space Telescope, in addition to making them uh, as sharp. 
You had a scientist downstairs who, as he was describing the spectacular results he's already getting from what you call cycle zero in this unfinished mm -hmm. instrument, he was saying, but if, if only it was a magnitude, mm -hmm. uh, an order of magnitude bigger. Mm -hmm. Scientists mm -hmm. are just never satisfied. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I was trying to see what our funding agency's uh, fellow's uh, face looked like when he asked for that. <laughs> so how far are we from seeing Alma? fully complete, all 66 of those telescopes working together through that uh, amazing supercomputer. Well, about a year. I yeah, guess, we're very close now. Far. Yeah, we're no, very close now, that that's right. Um, once the antennas started being delivered and the correlator was delivered, it all started to move very quickly. Mm -hmm. And right now, the antennas are going up as quickly as uh, once a week up the mountain, and they're integrated into the array. A lot of tests are done, and then they're used for science. And so it's a very fast process um, with a lot of people working around the clock. They're operating 24 hours doing the engineering tests as well as making the science observations. So I think right now there are something like 46 antennas that could be used together mm -hmm. um, in an observation, but we have both 12-meter and 7-meter antennas there. Now, in full ALMA, these will be used as two separate arrays. The 7-meter antennas will be used for observing things with a larger angular scale, larger structures in the sky, which are actually resolved out, meaning you don't see them at all using the 12-meter the antennas because you hmm. simply have too much resolution, and so you don't see the large structures. So and these provide the context. That's right, and so you'll be able to add the data from these two arrays together to see very fine detail on very large scales, hmm. which will be um, uh, something that has not been done before. So that'll be a new thing for ALMA. I want to thank you both very much for joining us uh, for this conversation, particularly when there is so much other, other stuff going on here at AAS. And I hope that we can check back with you. I know that you've got a big day coming up, Al, the, the, the official inauguration of... Yeah, Alma. in March. That's right. A giant ordeal. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we can check with you uh, either before that or when you've relaxed a little bit afterward and uh, talk a little bit more about how Alma is coming together. Sure, absolutely, Matt. Absolutely. Thank you. Absolutely. It's something we're really looking forward to. Thanks for having us. My complete conversation with scientists Al Wotton and Allison Peck about the tremendous new radio telescope called ALMA is available online at planetary.org slash radio. Al is ALMA's North American Project Scientist and head of the North American ALMA Science Center at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory. Allison Peck led a team of ALMA commissioning scientists in Chile for five years. I'll be right back with Bruce Betts. Live on the Skype line, we've got Bruce Betts for this week's edition of What's Up. And I hope you can tell us about the night sky. I can, I can. It'll be very exciting. Not as exciting as the answer to the trivia question, which brought out the rocker in our listeners. Well, good. I look forward to finding out about that. In the meantime, I'll tell you about uh, that night sky. We've got Jupiter, of course, still dominating the evening sky over in the east. If you pick this up right after it comes out, you may see the moon still in the either very close to it on Monday night or in its general neighborhood on Tuesday. Uh, we've got Mars low in the west. It's tricky to see, but low and reddish shortly after sunset. And what's interesting is Mercury will be coming to play with us in February, so it's coming up very low in the west. And Mars and Mercury will pass within 0.3 degrees of each other. In other words, really, really close 
on February 8th, although it will be tough to see because you'll have to have an open view to the western horizon in the early evening. But Mercury will then keep getting higher and Mars keep getting lower. In the pre-dawn sky, you can check out Saturn high overhead and Venus, also very low but super bright uh, for a little bit longer. You can see how much longer you can still see it over in the east. We move on to this week in space history. 1967 was the Apollo 1 fire that killed three astronauts. And in a much happier note, 2004, nine years ago, Opportunity landed on Mars, still going strong. Off we go to random space. Back. <laughs> the X-15, which uh, I know you enjoy. Very much. The uh, space plane program hypersonic testing. I uh, had 12 pilots over its history, most famous being Neil Armstrong for other reasons. In 2005, NASA awarded astronaut wings to three of the pilots, two of them posthumously, for going above 50 miles which is one definition of space. The military pilots had already been given astronaut wings, but the civilians hadn't primarily because NASA didn't award them at the time. <laughs> well, good for them. Good on them. And I'm, I'm glad at least one of them was around to, uh, to enjoy that honor. Uh, well earned. That was uh, such a terrific program. All right. We move on to the trivia contest. <laughs> and uh, in, a, in a different take than usual, uh, I asked you what song by what group starts with the lyrics, we had a lot of luck on Venus, we always had a ball on Mars. Looking for the group and the song. And we got both from many, many people, a near record setter in uh, terms of responses to this question. I don't know whether it was the, the classic rock and roll that brought people out or the fact that our winner is going to get Bill Nye's voice on his answering machine. And it is an he, a he because our winner is Chris Campbell, chosen by Random.org. Everybody who entered had the right answer. Uh, the song, as I guess you know all too well, Bruce, was Space Truckin'. Space Truckin' by Deep Purple. Yeah, 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 yeah Space Truckin'. <laughs> we got all kinds of discography information from listeners, some of it really <laughs> quite fascinating. Claude Plymate pointed out it's on the album Machine Head, a classic of rock and roll. It was released in 72, although the song was written in 71, and apparently just about coincided with uh, the arrival at Mars of Mariner 9 that went into orbit around the planet. I don't know if that's what inspired it or not. Uh, Claude also says that that album featured the iconic song Smoke on the Water, dun, 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 that features the three first chords learned by just about every budding guitarist ever since. Let me tell you why I'm so happy that Chris Campbell of Atlanta, Georgia, is our winner this week. Uh, he listens to uh, us on WREK 91.1 FM. That's the, the Georgia Tech uh, radio station. But here's what really makes me happy that he got it. He says, come on, random.org, give me Bill Nye's voice so I can impress colleagues and score chicks. <laughs> Noble goals. Yeah, no, not the not the planetary radio or the planetary society endorse these goals, but uh, uh, good on you, Chris. That's <laughs> a, a fun radio station. Call call uh, call letters. I didn't realize the Ramble and Wreck had a yeah, wreck. It's the wreck of the tech. <laughs> so anyway, congratulations, Chris. What do you got for us next time? Going a little more traditionally. What pilot flew the most flights in the X fifteen? It was a lot. What pilot flew the most flights in the X-15? And Matt, what are they supposed to do to enter nowadays? 
Bruce, they need to use our new online form. They go to planetary.org slash radio trivia. Planetary.org slash radio trivia. That's the shortcut. You can also get there from the page where uh, this show is listed on our website. Go to planetary.org slash radio. And uh, I think that'll do it, except to say that uh, this time we need your answer by Monday, the 28th of January at 2 p.m. Pacific time. And the prize once again, third time running, will be Bill Nye's voice on your answering machine. Is his voice going to hold out? We shall find out together. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about archery. Thank you. Good night. That's Bruce Betts, the director of projects for the Planetary Society. He joins us every week here for What's Up? Well, we had a lot of luck on Venus. We always had a ball on Mars. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by a grant from the Kenneth T. and Eileen L. Norris Foundation and by the members of the Planetary Society. Keep on trekking, Captain Kirk. Come on! Come on, let's go space trucking!